the biggest challenge that we face in this century is to provide sufficient water, food and energy to allow everyone on the planet to live decent lives in the face of rising population, the threat of climate change and declining fossil fuels. I think that maybe 150 years ago, one could have imagined going back to an age where we were powered just by muscle power, human and animal muscle power. But today that's impossible with nearly 7 billion people on the planet, about 50% living in big cities, and likely to go up to 9 billion in the middle of the century, and later in the century, 80% in big cities. Without large supplies of artificial energy, our sewage system would break down, we wouldn't get enough water, they wouldn't be able to produce or transport enough food. So I think that energy is a necessary, but not sufficient, means to meet this challenge. Although energy in itself, of course, is a means, not an end. The end is the decent lives for everyone. The scale of the challenge is enormous. The International Energy Agency in Paris every year produces scenarios, projections of the future. And late last year, they produced what they called, actually it should be the new policies scenario. This scenario assumes the successful implementation of all agreed national policies and announced commitments designed to save energy and reduce use of fossil fuels. So they actually believe when the government says we'll be at 80% down on our CO2 by 2050, it's going to happen, even if it hasn't been agreed how it would happen, although in this country people have made ideas. But they've taken seriously all those commitments, even when it's not, no, no action's been taken, and said, what would happen if they meet those commitments? And very disappointingly, the result is that by 2035, energy use, which is designed to go down, will be up 35%. Fossil fuel is up 24%. This is mainly coming from the developing world. This use is compounded of about slightly less than 4% increase in OECD countries and about 65% in developing world where, thank God, living standards are rising but the population is also rising. So we ought to do better than this. But this is already very difficult. It involves nuclear power going up 80%, that's possible. Hydropower up 70%. It's very tough. Think of all those dams that have to be built. Wind up 13-fold, etc. If you ask, what would you like to happen, much better than this. But if you ask instead, what do you think will happen, BP recently published a projection of what they actually think is going to happen. They think energy will rise 40% in the earlier date of 2030. So it's really, really difficult. My talk's going to be about the world situation, but I'd like to say something briefly about the UK. Uh, this is the generating capacity, electrical ge power generation capacity in the UK, and it's set to drop 44% by 2020. And the reason for that is closing down coal power stations which don't meet modern emissions controls and are killing people. I'll come back to the figures. And that some of the old nuclear power is, uh, has to be taken offline because it's reached the end of its lifetime. I want to make a few remarks about this. The first is a technical remark. This is capacity which is not the same as output. And uh, so the average output is uh, 44 gigawatts, but you need a bigger capacity for when there are fluctuations in demand, much like to smooth out the demand, of course. 
But capacity is particularly misleading for renewable energies. Because whereas nuclear runs more or less at full capacity, wind, for example, you're lucky if you get, on average, 30% of the nominal capacity. So this is misleading if you see compare the nuclear bit here with the renewables bit here. It looks as if they're similar. But in fact, if you run, add up the renewables, the output, uh, nuclear is nearly three times, 2.8 times as much as the, um, as the renewables. Now, 44% is pretty serious, and it's worse than that, of course, because demand is rising. What's going to happen? It's going to be met by gas. If the last government hadn't shilly-shallied about nuclear power, it might have been possible to meet it with nuclear, but it isn't, and it's not possible to fill that with renewables. The only thing that can fill this gap on that timescale is more gas. Does it matter that we're going to be so reliant on gas? We're already 42% reliant on gas. If you'd asked me that question three years ago, I would have said yes. The gas is going to be coming from Russia and Kazakhstan through countries, Belarus and so on, which may well want to you know, ransom us by controlling the pipeline. would have been very worried about it. But there's been a revolution in gas in the last three years, completely unexpected, the development of shale oil, and now there are many more sources of gas supply. So this becoming reliant on gas, I think, is not a problem. But the message I would draw from this is it's very, very dangerous to be dogmatic about future supplies of fossil fuels. A final introductory remark is that meeting this challenge is going to require a portfolio of all sensible measures and the political will and the social willingness to adopt, adapt new technologies and change behavior. Obviously, I can't cover the whole subject in one lecture, especially as following uh, Fukushima, I thought you'd like to hear something, my view about the nuclear situation and about nuclear safety, and I'd like, if time permits, to say something about fusion on which I've worked. So I'm going to focus mainly on technical things issues and facts, and even so be highly selective, and it's possible I'll never get to the fusion bit. I want to begin with some facts. We use an enormous amount of energy. We are, the world is using energy at the rate of 16.3 terawatts. That unit may not mean much to you. It's a huge number, difficult to grasp. So to make it an understandable form, you should divide it by the world's population. We're using energy at the rate of 2.4 kilowatts per person. So we're using energy at the same rate as 24 old-fashioned 100-watt incandescent light bulbs burning continuously for every man, woman, and child on the planet. So we're using up the energy fast in an enormously varied way. Uh, in the USA, which is not the biggest user, but at that end of the spectrum, near the end of the spectrum. It's 10.3 kilowatts average per person, whereas in Bangladesh, which is not at the bottom but near the bottom, it's 0.21 kilowatts, a factor of 50 between the per capita energy use in the USA and in Bangladesh. A very important point is that when people talk about energy, and especially new energy, they tend to focus on electricity. But actually, the production of electricity only uses one-third of primary energy, maybe about 35%. But that fraction is bigger in the developed world than in the developing world, and it is rising. 
And I think in the future, the world's going to become increasingly electrified. So I'm going to make no... Don't need to apologize about talking mainly about new electricity sources. And if you think about it, if we had a good source of enough electricity, we could do everything we want to do, more or less, except flying. And even that you can do because you can synthesize uh, hydrocarbons. But this is important. And by the way, when you read in the newspaper, this new source will provide so much of the UK's energy... Almost always it means electricity. But you have to read the rest of the text to find out what it means because the author clearly doesn't understand the difference. And failure to understand this difference is responsible for the EU having impossible energy targets, actually. Now, world energy use is expected to increase 40% by 2030. I gave you the BP number. And an increase is needed to lift billions out of poverty in the developing world. We don't need more energy. We could live perfectly well with less. But uh, there are billions of people out there, and I'll give you the figures in a minute, who desperately need more energy to live decent lives. And that number is, that's where the population is increasing. Final basic fact, 80% of the world's primary energy is generated by burning fossil fuels, oil, coal, and gas which is causing potentially catastrophic climate change and horrendous pollution and is unsustainable because that's certainly not going to last forever. I want to now say a little bit more about the developing world and then come back to where the other 20% comes from before saying something about the timescale for fossil fuels and the timescales involved in climate change. This is a situation a year or two ago, but 2005 hasn't changed much. 1.6 billion people lack electricity. And these are the numbers. That's in 580 million rural in India, 126 million in cities. And this is not a camping holiday. These people are spending in the rural areas huge amounts of time carrying water and fetching rubbish, dung, and things on which to cook. And these are mainly children who are not being educated and women who are not otherwise productively employed. So this is the situation. Can we imagine these people coming up to our sort of standard of living? Maybe, but energy use, no. So you can ask, if everybody could come up to today's level in the USA, what would have to happen? Actually, it's implicit in the numbers I gave earlier. Total energy use would have to increase by a factor of 4.3. That's today. But when we're at 9 billion, 5.9. I don't think that's possible. What about a more modest target of the UK? Well, then it's a factor of 1.9 with today's population, 2.6 when we're at 9 billion. I don't think either of such increase is possible. So there's going to have to be a change of expectations in both the developed and the developing world, and we must seek to use energy more efficiently and develop new clean sources of energy. Now, where does the rest come from? So this is a slightly complicated uh, slide, and in the end, all you've got to remember is this column. So a slight technical slide, what are these numbers that look very different? These are the numbers that you get for primary energy from the uh, International Energy Agency. And they're a little bit funny because it says 5.8% nuclear, all of which makes electricity, 2.2% hydro, all of which also makes electricity. But when you look at electricity, hydro produces more electricity than nuclear. So what's going on? This is primary energy by the IEA. In the case of fossil fuels, that's the amount of heat it produces. 
And in the case of nuclear, that's the amount of heat produced by burning nuclei, only about 30% of which ends up in electricity. Whereas this is the amount of electricity produced. So these numbers are not fungible. If hydro vanished, you'd actually have to add 6.6% if you wanted to replace it with nuclear. So to make them compatible, you have to multiply up to the equivalent amount of heat to produce this amount of electricity, or the amount of electricity we get from wind, or the amount of electricity we get from solar, some of which goes straight to heat. So you've got to multiply those up, then fix the whole thing to be 100%, and those are the numbers. But to remember this, in rounded terms, 80% of our energy from fossil fuels, 10% from combustible renewables and waste, some of this renewable, but very little being renewed. Often this number part's forgotten, but it's quite big. 5% from nuclear, actually a bit more. 5% from hydro, actually a bit more. And about 1% from the other renewables. So the first thing to say here is if you think these sources of energy can take over from fossil fuels, they've got to go up a factor of 80, which shows you what an enormous challenge it is. These are the world average figures. They're very varied. In China, for example, coal produces 64% of primary energy compared to 42% of 80%, uh, much less in the rest of the world, and gas only 3%. The fact that China uses more coal is part of the explanation for the very large number of premature deaths in China from air pollution. The other part is inefficient technology. Burning coal is dangerous. According to the World Health Organization, it causes about 2 million premature deaths a year, typically 10 years' loss of life. And it's not just China, it's the USA, 41,000. So these are huge numbers of people from breathing in coal dust particulates produced by power stations and industry. These numbers dwarf even the wildest numbers of people think could come from nuclear accidents. You'd need a nuclear war, not a nuclear accident, to get numbers, anything like that. And I'll come back to the nuclear safety later. So it's mostly coming from fossil fuels. Uh, how long are they going to last? And uh, what about the climate change? So there is a Saudi saying, my father rode a camel, I drive a car, my son flies a plane, his son will ride a camel. Is it true? I think probably not. Although it may be that we're about to see the sun setting over the conventional oil industry. So I come now to the vexed question of peak oil. Many of you will have heard this phrase. So what is peak oil about? It turns out that in, uh, it was predicted by a chap called King Hubbard, but uh, and it's been observed in many areas, the continental United States, uh, the North Sea, about 40 countries now, in a given area, for conventional oil, that means oil with the same sort of consistency you get out of the ground in Saudi Arabia, when you're about halfway through the primordial endowment, however much you can get out, production starts dropping, 2 or 3, 3% a year. The reason for that is that once you're through about half, you found the easy bit to find. The second lot is harder to find in smaller oil wells, and the pressure is dropping in the original oil wells. So oil production goes up and comes down again. The question is, is this going to happen for the world? Are we going to run out of oil? No, we're never going to run out of oil. The question how much oil is out there depends on how much there is there in the first place, as a geological question. 
technology, how much we can get out, and how much we're prepared to pay. What's going to happen is the price is going to go up till we stop using it for the way we're using it today. It's never actually going to run out, I don't think. Now, for conventional oil, there's a huge dispute where the peak will come for the world. There's a lot of people who think we're at it already. It's been hidden by the recession. But there are even different definitions of conventional oil. It's tricky. A recent literature review by the UK Energy Research Centre says that the peak is likely to occur before 2030. Significant risk it will occur before 2020. And Dave King thinks we've reached it already, but I think he has a rather odd definition of conventional oil. So maybe the sun is setting on conventional oil. What will happen? Well, if it really happens, we'll start turning coal and gas into oil. I'll come to that in a minute. But there is unconventional oil there, heavy oil, oil shale, tar sands. Uh, This is increasing and could produce a second oil age. It's increasing slowly, so maybe there'll be a dip, but I would be careful about that because it could be changed by new technologies. For example, production of uh, hydrocarbons from shale oil. So it's rather, I do not think we're going to see a big peak in oil. There could be, however, big pressure on prices as we move from conventional oil to more expensive oil. And the unconventional oil tends to do rather serious environmental damage. I'd be happy to answer questions on that. What about gas? So conventional gas is estimated to last about 130 years, but be careful. These estimates are always with current use, and use is going up. Use is going up rather slowly at the moment because of the recession, 1.5%, which turns 130 years into 73 years, not so long. But it's been completely changed by shale oil, as I said. So what is shale oil? This is oil and also a lot of coal bed, methane, and tight gas. Talk about shale oil because that's a new discovery. Shale oil is uh, shale gas trapped in shale, but it's not enough just to drill a hole and the pressure brings it out. The way to get it out is to pump, drill down and pump in a lot of water which fractures the rock so it liberates the gas. Water mixed with a little bit of chemicals, and that's an environmental problem, and some sand. And the sand is literally to prop open the cracks you make. And the new technology, that's a relatively old technology. The new technology is discovering how to drill vertically and then for many kilometers horizontally. And this really developed about three years ago and the result has been doubled the amount of gas around the way. This is very, very uncertain. It could be less, but it could be a lot more. But it's transformed the situation. In the Middle East, in Qatar, for example, where there's a huge amount of natural gas, they've been building big plants to liquefy the gas to take it to the U.S. The U.S. suddenly doesn't need it. They may become an exporter, in fact. So that gas in Qatar, which was designed for the U.S., is now available for the British market, the European market, and the Japanese market. So from being in a place where we were in the hands of Russia and Kazakhstan, suddenly there's a glut on the market and lots of providers, and there's not a problem with gas. Coal, it's said there's enough for 200 years, but careful with the growth, and there are people who question this. I'm not convinced by them. But the growth in gas and and coal is going to increase, remember, as oil becomes scarce. So at some point, we will have to worry about this. But even then, there are huge quantities of what are called methyl hydrates. I can talk about that later, if you like. At the moment, we don't have the technology to extract it. It's not sure that it's safe to extract it. And there's a worry that it will be released from the tundra 
as the climate changes and really have a tremendously damaging effect. At the end of the Paleocene, uh, it looks as if the temperature went up about five or eight degrees from the release of methyl hydrates from the tundra. I'm going to say a bit more about that in a minute. My conclusion is we need to prepare for increasing oil price, but fossil fuels are able and likely to continue to play a dominant role for, for many decades. But when you step back, they're not there forever. We've been accumulating them for 100 million years, maybe 200 million years, and on this scale, the oil age is a, a blink of an eye. So eventually, we are, they're not going to be there. What about the time scale to avoid climate change? Now, there are lots of misleading statements about there, and I've been guilty of asking the wrong questions and giving the wrong answer myself, such as, how long does the CO2 stay in the atmosphere? That's not the right question. CO2 is going in and out of the atmosphere the whole time, and how long an individual molecule stays, which is perhaps 100 years, 35, 100 years, I'm not even sure of the answer, doesn't matter. The question is, there's some going from the ocean into the atmosphere and the atmosphere into the ocean and into vegetation. If we have a big increase in CO2 and switch it off, how long does it take for, to reach a new equilibrium? This is uh, not easy to give answers for a number of reasons. But I'm quoting here the paper by Archer et al., I say, for the experts, but it's quite uncertain. They think that there will be a new ocean e atmosphere equilibrium if you, if you put in a big peak and then stopped carbon emissions. They think it'll take maybe 300 years to reach new equilibrium at perhaps 20 to 40% of the peak value. But when you read the paper, it says it could be 20 centuries, anything from 2 to 20 centuries. It depends how big the peak is, and it depends on the feedback from the change in vegetation and very difficult things to estimate. Then some gets taken up as carbion, car, uh, calcium carbonates, uh, that's going to take maybe 5,000 years, and eventually igneous rocks, hundreds of thousands of years. So it's a very, very long time scale, and this needs a lot more work on it. We don't really know, but it looks like it's a very long time scale to go back. Conclusion for this is we should have started reducing CO2 yesterday, first conclusion, but the other conclusion is it's never too late. Unless we've given up burning fossil fuels because we've run out or we've found a cheaper alternative, it's accumulating there. And it's the total that matters, not the rate at which it's giving in. So this long time scale says it's never too late. Now, meanwhile, anyway, I think the fossil fuels may be 100 years, maybe 200 years, we can argue, but it's short compared to these lifetimes. What can we do meanwhile? We can try to capture the carbon and bury it underground if we're going to go on using CO2. And because everything else is so much more expensive, it's difficult to see us stopping doing that. Now, this is not a panacea, and it's not at all obvious that it's possible and safe. Uh, first, you have to realize we can't capture all the CO2. We're not going to be running around behind each car uh, capturing the CO2 like people sweeping up dung in the 19th century. Uh, we can only capture the CO2 from power stations and large industrial plants, maybe 30% of the total. If you do that, uh, there are various technologies to capture it and then put it in pipes and bury it underground. But uh, it's, it's got to stay down there for thousands of years, and it's not clear that it will. We don't really know the answer. I think it's essential we do more studies of this, the geology and the flow of the CO2, 
and uh, run, r- roll out tests. But it's going to be expensive. It is not a panacea. It's going to be very expensive, and it's not obvious that it's going to work. And by the way, if you live over a CO2 store and it leaks, you're suffocated. It's much safer to live over a radioactive store, whereas if your Geiger counter starts clicking, you get in your car and drive away. Nevertheless, we must try to do this, see if it's possible, and if it is, roll it out quickly. Easy to say, but harder to do, as it will be expensive. No, sorry, I'm going the wrong way here. Um, Right, I'm going the wrong way completely. So what should we be doing? Carbon capture and storage, if feasible and safe. That's just for climate change. Every other action here we should be doing anyway in order to meet the supply of the rising world population and demand and to diversify our supply in anticipation of the decrease in availability of fossil fuels. Reduce energy use, improve efficiency. Yes, we can do it, and it's going to save a lot of money. I'll come back to that. But I think the best we can hope is to curb the growth. I can't see world energy use going down unless development stops in Africa and India, and we don't want that. Develop and expand low energy carbon sources, but I'm going to, we need everything we can sensibly get. But I'm going to argue that without large contributions from solar and or nuclear, it's not going to be possible to replace everything we get from fossil fuels. Everything today, and that's going up. And devise economic tools and ensure the political will to make this happen. So I've got a slide now on energy use, demand reduction, and energy efficiency. How do we use our energy? So again, in very rounded figures, so they're easy to remember, like my 80%, 10%. 25% in industry, that includes agriculture, though it's a small part of it. 25% in transport, and 50% in the built environment. That's slightly misleading because it includes, you know, the energy in the freezer in Sainsbury's and uh, computers in the office. So, but, but it's not industrial plant, but it's anything in offices. Now, how much of this is domestic? Well, we drive cars and we travel and we have houses or flats. About 30% is domestic in the UK, So although what we do individually doesn't matter, what we do collectively matters a lot. We are using 30% of the energy. Now, I want to say something about demand reduction and demand management. What's the difference between demand reduction and management and efficiency? Well, a very simple example would be demand reduction was to design buildings so they use natural light and you don't need artificial light in the daytime. That would be demand reduction. Efficiency is to make sure when the sun sets and you do need the light, your light bulb is efficient. Simple as that. So we've got to design out energy as far as possible, design cities so you have to travel less. And then we've got to get it more efficient. But more efficient has a negative feedback. If we could make cars that will do uh, 1,000 miles a gallon, anyone who's put off by driving by the cost of petrol will no longer be put off. So it's a little bit dangerous, the greater efficiency, unless we keep the prices high enough by tax or artificial means. Uh, Devar management is about smoothing out the demand so we don't have peaks between the day and the night so we can have less generating capacity and less capacity on the grid. Substantial efficiency gains are possible all over the place. Uh, Raise the average thermal power plant efficiency from 33%, 1970 to 
You know, the heat, only 33% on average, more from coal, less from nuclear, because nuclear op- operates at lower temperatures, gets into electricity. You can't get all that much higher. It's the second law of thermodynamics. But you can certainly get to 45%, the state of the art today. Better insulated buildings, more efficient lighting. People sort of laugh when you say, turn off the lights and save energy. But amazingly, uh, lighting uses 19% of world electricity production. One nine, 19% of electricity production goes into lighting. Those old-fashioned incandescent bulbs, about 5% efficient energy into light. The modern curly ones, 20% efficient. Light-emitting diodes, which have horrible spectra uh, and, you know, look cold, um, but that's, people are working on that, including in this university, about 40% efficiency. So lighting matters. More efficient cars and so on. There is a huge scope and considerable progress, but demand is rising faster. Efficiency is a key component of the solution but cannot meet the energy challenge on its own. Now, I said already, you know, uh, cost matters, but regulation is vital. And I'm going to show you, uh, later I'll show you a slide to show you how much cost matters. This is a slide on regulation. So what's this slide? These are passenger cars in the U.S. And this set of data here, as a matter of function of the year, is fuel efficiency. That's ton miles per gallon, all right? This one is fuel economy. That's miles per gallon. And they are tracking each other very neatly. And then suddenly, in this year here, uh, they diverged. What happened? And the answer is there were mandatory corporate average fuel economy standards. So the manufacturers were forced to make their cars more efficient, and they put the efficiency in to give you better miles per gallon. Those things stopped, and they said, oh, let's make the cars heavier and give them better acceleration. And you can see it here. They were getting lighter, and suddenly all the cars got more uh, heavier again. And they were suddenly, the acceleration got better. Totally unnecessary. It's the acceleration that causes traffic jams, all those people accelerating and braking again. If we had less acceleration, we'd have fewer traffic jams. But you see, if this, they had not ended these law this fuel economy would have gone on up with the fuel efficiency. But there wasn't demand from the passengers, so the manufacturers did something else. So regulation is absolutely vital. Now I want to come to what can possibly replace the 13.3 terawatts and rising. And what I've done here is I've left out, for the moment, solar and nuclear fission and fusion. And I've given the thermal equivalent of my best guess of what is the most you could get. And some of these, I I don't have time to go through the details, but the hydro, it's more or less a theorem. You can't get more than about uh, a terawatt, well, twice today. This is thermal equivalent. Wind, you can argue about this, but the the world energy, the world wind, what's it called? The global world... The Global Wind Energy Council thinks that this is about the most you could get this century anyway. So if I add up these numbers, they come to about half of what we're getting from fossil fuels, a target that's rising. So there's not enough from these sources. It would be great if there was, but there isn't. Uh, So we should expand them as much as we reasonably can. I'm not saying we shouldn't do these things. I'm saying they're not enough. So we're going to have to have solar and nuclear, fission or fusion. 
By the way, these maxima are very location-dependent. We've got 40% of Europe's wind potential. We're not using it. Well, we're starting to. It's mostly in Germany, which is a bad place to put it, uh, and so on. There's huge hydro potential in the Congo, etc., etc., etc. So it's horses for courses. Now, what about now solar, fission, and fusion? Solar, the potential is absolutely enormous. There's enough solar power to meet all our needs with an even huge expansion forever. If you take the average solar power flux reaching the Earth's surface, the average, not at the equator where it's better, the average, and you covered one half of 1% of the land surface with systems that would turn that solar energy into electricity at 15% efficiency, which is available today, that would produce you uh, 20, um, 20 terawatts. So this is a map. The, half a percent of the land surface doesn't sound much, but it's a huge area. This is six areas, each size to produce 3.3 terawatts. So if you filled up these areas with solar systems at half a percent efficiency, sorry, 15% efficiency, they could power the world and future needs. This is electrical, so it's more than we're using today, quite a lot more. So the potential is enormous. But before you get carried away with the potential, today, solar is producing half a gigawatt of electricity out of a total of 2.3 gigawatts. Uh, sorry, 2.3 terawatts. So uh, the potential's huge, but, and that's good, but there is an enormous step to be made. And the reason is it's very expensive, first of all. Secondly, you notice it's all in areas where the sun shines. It's not so good up here. And think about it here, up here somewhere in the winter. Uh, so we need the cost down, and we need ways to store it, to make it available at night, and we don't have many good methods of storing energy, and to transmit it between these areas. So just a few figures. What are the techniques, photovoltaics, where you can store the energy by turning it into hydrogen, or then you, but then there are challenges, a lot of work going on in this in Oxford, by the way, of transmitting the hydrogen, or you can build a grid, and there are plans to build a grid all the way around the Mediterranean to bring solar and wind power from North Africa to Europe. But that's expensive, of course. The costs at the moment, currently, large-scale in very good conditions, are about 25 US cents a kilowatt hour. The International Energy Agency thinks maybe we can get it down to five by 2050, in which case this might actually happen. But that's a pretty big challenge. The other is solar concentration. This is a system where you have mirrors, which you can also have here, by the way, to get more sunlight, have mirrors that focus the sun, there are different configurations, here's the most common, onto a tube which has a liquid in it, and it heats the liquid. That liquid then heats a secondary liquid which drives a turbine. So it's sort of conventional at the end of the day. So it's making heat which you turn into electricity. The big example, advantage of this is the heat you can store. You can take the heat from these tubes here, use them to melt salt that you put in a big thermos bottle, basically, and it will keep your heat going after the sun, your system going after the sun sets. And then maybe you can turn on a gas boiler you know, in the middle of the night when there's very little demand. This has been in use in the uh, Mojave Desert since the 1980s, this sort of method. Today it's about 20 cents a kilowatt hour, 
so it's better at the moment. And the IEA thinks you can get to five by 2030, and the US Department of Energy thinks you maybe even do better. So this is pretty promising stuff. Now, uh, again, going the wrong way. What about nuclear? So I'm going to be a bit provocative here. I think nuclear should be expanded dramatically now. We have a new generation of nuclear reactors with fewer components, passive safety, less waste, more proliferation resistant, and that's the real danger of nuclear. But the cat's out of the bag. If we have more nuclear in the UK, it's going to make no difference to the threat of somebody else building a bomb, I think. Lower downtime and lower costs. Looking further to the future, we've got to look at the limitations and the options. Proliferation, but I think it's mainly a political issue. The Royal Society is shortly bringing out a report on this. There are things you can do technically, but it's a political issue. Safety, and here I'm really going to stick my neck out, is mainly a problem of perception. Coming to that in a minute. Waste, the problem is technically solved, but there's a perception problem, and there's a problem of the volume of waste. And there is a problem with uranium resources. Now, I think, but I'm on the very optimistic side here, that with current use and today's reactors, there's enough for about 475 years. But that assumes what geologists tell us about uranium that hasn't been found yet, and it assumes we have the technology to take uraniums from, from phosphates. Uh, if you're more strict on this, we've only got about um, a sixth of that. So we only know of about a sixth of that, but maybe all right. Now, on the other hand, if we took it to 100% of today's electricity, it's about 80 years. So sooner or later, uranium prices are really going to go up and we're going to start getting scarce. So we have to think about the options. I'll come back to the options. What are the aims? Less waste. Prolong the nuclear age by getting more energy per kilogram of uranium or using thorium and greater proliferation resistance. Well, now I'm going to come to the nuclear safety record. Three Mile Island, everybody's heard of it. It killed the nuclear industry in the US, but it didn't kill anybody. It was a success. It was due, by the way, to human error. Uh, there was maintenance going on, and they ignored the instructions, and a mechanical failure of a valve, and an operator not noticing a warning light. So these things should have been designed to make it harder to make such errors, uh, but no one was killed. Chernobyl, this is the one you've all heard of. This was due to rubbishy design. This could not have happened except with those Russian reactors. And the operators playing games, basically. 134 people suffered high radiation doses, you know, blotches on their skin, of whom 28 died in a few months. By 2006, uh, 20 years later, 19 others had died, which is sort of the number you might have expected anyway. And I'm quoting here from a UN report from causes not normally associated with radiation. So maybe one or two of those were radiation, but we're talking about maybe 35 people who got the high doses. In the contaminated regions, where there were hundreds of thousands of people, in Belarus, the Russian Federation, and Ukraine, there was an increase in thyroid cancer in children, 6,000 cases. Actually, it's not clear what the increase was, so it wasn't being very carefully monitored. Uh, this could have been prevented by taking iodine tablets, but the Russians didn't have the iodine tablets. This comes from iodine-131, has a half-life of about seven days, which gets, accumulates in the thyroid gland, especially of children. If you take iodine tablets, it, it saturates the thyroid gland with iodine, so they can't accumulate, but the Russians would not accept a gift of iodine tablets. 
But of these 6,000 cases, uh, they had therapy and they were cured. By 2005, 15 had died. So the definite deaths are 28 plus 15, but maybe there's more. The UN's latest report, which came out very recently, says because of uncertainties in the predictions, uh, they've decided not to project numbers in populations exposed to low doses. But the average dose from cesium, which is the worst thing out there, has a half-life around 40 years, was approximately equal for that from one CT scan for the large numbers. The major effect was the major social and economic impact and stress. Paralyzing fatalism is the word used in the reports. It really caused tremendous psychological damage. Now, um, what about these numbers? There have been bigger numbers, so I want to talk about those, but they're based on something called the linear no-threshold assumption, which I think, and my friend Wade Allison has written a book saying this, is not valid. What is it, and what would it give it if it was valid? So I'll give you an analogy, which is not an analogy of the science, but what linear no-threshold means. If you take five liters of blood out of me, I die, okay? But if you take five liters of blood out of ten people, that's the same as what you give you if you have a blood transfusion, half a liter per person. The linear uh, no-threshold assumption would say one of those dies, or if you take half, if 100 people have a, a, bl- a blood transfusion, uh, uh, then you've taken out, uh, let's see, uh, half a litre for 100, so you've taken uh, 50 litres, uh, 10 people would die, according to this assumption. That's obviously wrong. doesn't mean it's wrong from radiation, but it means it's not obviously right. The assumption also says, if applied to blood donation, if you take half a litre from me today, I'm okay, but if you do it for 10 years... Uh, I'm going to die because they've taken half a litre from it. That's obviously wrong too. So this assumption is is dubious, but it was the only assumption to make post-Hiroshima before we knew more. Now we've got better data, and we understand the biology better. The United Nations says you shouldn't do it, and actually the IEA said calculation of the number of the cancer deaths based on collective doses should be avoided. Nevertheless, in 2006 they did it. And they said this might eventually represent up to 4,000 4, fatal cancer deaths. So on this assumption, which I don't think is right, maybe we're talking about 4,000. That's very bad. And the 28 people who died is very bad. All this is a disaster. But you've got to compare it with what happens from other power generation. A one gigawatt coal power station in Western Europe kills about 300 people a year from increased... You don't know that they died from the power station. It's just like low-level radiation. If you get cancer, you don't know what caused it. It's from ingesting particulates and so on in the air. Ten-year loss of life. So in a 40-year lifetime, that's 12,000 deaths. So my soundbite for this is that Didcot Power Station has killed more people than Chernobyl. There's only one Chernobyl, there's lots of Didcot Power Stations. For comparison, what about direct deaths... Coal mining. Coal mining deaths in China, these are the official figures, and there's unofficial coal mines killing more, uh, kill about 6,000 a year. Much better in other countries with better safety standards, about 30 a year in the US, for, for example. But these are by no means the biggest cause of death from power production. 
Amazingly, per kilowatt hour, the power source of power that causes the most direct deaths is hydropower. These are breaking dams in Russia, India, Latin America, Africa. It's not necessary. You don't hear of people dying in Switzerland from breaking dams, but it's happening. It's quite stochastic, and the statistics I could get are quite... Oh, they're from virtually the... Um, Ah, yes, it was compiled by the World Nuclear Association. But hydro dams, on average, kill 2.5 times more people per kilowatt hour as burning coal. Of course, it's much fewer kilowatt hours. Bhopal, 3,800 deaths. And on the road, a million deaths a year. So these are terrible figures. But you put them in perspective, you may think differently. Now, Fukushima, I can see I'm going to have to skip what I was going to say on fusion. It's too early to draw the lessons. But it's clear the precautions could have been better. The, although geologists had told them you can have really big tsunamis, they designed it for a tsunami up to 6.5 metres, and actually it was up to 11 metres. So a failure of design. And they also hadn't taken into account the fact that they might need the emergency power systems when there was a, a tsunami that they might happen at, at once, that the main power system had failed, so they needed the emergency ones. I mean, just bad planning. Okay, so what happened? After the earthquake, the reactor immediately shut down. Um, this is called a, a, a scram. It's very interesting, the origin of the world. Does anybody, does anybody know where scram comes from? Probably Nick Jelly. Uh, when Fermi built the world's first nuclear pile... He put in lots of safety features in case it started to run away, systems which would automatically drop in uh, rods of boron that absorb neutrons and slow it down. But at the last minute, he thought, although I've got redundant systems, just to be sure, I'll add one more. So he dangled a, a control rod from the roof with a rope on it, and he put a bloke up on the, on the balcony. This is in the squash courts under the uh, football stand in the University of Chicago with an axe ready to cut, cut the rope. And somebody drew a picture of it, and they've put S-C-R-A-M next to that. And that stands for uh, Safety Control Rod Axe Man. <laughs> <laughs> and as a result of that, shutting down a nuclear reactor to this day is called a scram. <laughs> so the reactor, the scram worked. And the only effect, uh, uh, so it stopped. The only effect of the direct effect of the earthquake is it looks as if it may have cracked the uh, cooling pools, which had uh, old nuclear fuel in them. Uh, what happens, when you shut down a nuclear reactor, the fission stops. It's no longer you know, busting up nuclei, but the radioactive material in the fuel rods goes on emitting heat. So immediately after the scram, the heat production drops from the level when you're producing power to about 6% of that level. Within a day, it's at 1%, and at five days, it at half a percent. So you must keep cooling it. So that the earthquake happened, and the cooling systems kicked in. But the main power lines were down, so they were lo working on local diesel generators. And then the tsunami showed up 30 minutes later, and that was the end of the local generators. So that was the problem. And then that was exacerbated because this was a boiling water reactor, and the heat was starting to boil the water, and the pressure was building up, and they had to vent it. But it got to a temperature where the zirconium, which holds the fuel, reacted with water to make hydrogen. And when they let that out, the hydrogen exploded. So that was what you saw going off the roof. 
However, and I'm quoting here from a personal friend of mine who's been involved in the cleanup in Hanford, uh, it says, there will be no long-term effects on the surrounding areas provided the government takes appropriate action to clean the soil and groundwater and no longer affects in the sea, but right at the site, of course, will be unusable. Actually, just a few, you know, area the size of this lecture theatre for maybe for many decades. Again, disruption and stress caused by overreaction. And there was a real catastrophe here. I don't understand how this happened. The uh, Japanese announced an exclusion zone of, let me get the number, I think it was 20 kilometers, something like that. Uh, but the Americans then announced that they, 30 kilometers, the Japanese announced. The Americans announced an 80 kilometer for American citizens which was based on a model. They didn't actually have the data of where the radiation was, which the Japanese did. They talked to meteorologists and made a model, so it was crazy, and it induced panic. The Japanese didn't say, ah, the Americans are right, the Japanese are wrong. They said, nobody knows what we're doing. Let's go on a plane and go to Okinawa. And the people who did that undoubtedly got more radiation from flying to Okinawa than they would have got from staying in Tokyo. So that was a big mistake. But one of the problems here is you want to be cautious, but if you overreact, you panic people and you create the same fatalism that has happened uh, in the Ukraine. This may change attitudes. There's been an anti-nuclear surge in France, but they're not going to give up nuclear, and in Germany. But recent polls suggest no change of attitude. There was one in the FT a few days ago that attitudes to nuclear power, which is slightly in favor, but that's somewhat more robust, less robust than the antis, uh, is the same as it was before the accident. But it has changed accidents. George Monbiot, a well-known Green, wrote in The uh, Guardian, Fukushima has made me stop worrying and love nuclear power. So what he actually wrote is a crappy old plant with inadequate safety features was hit by a monster earthquake and a vast tsunami. The electricity supply failed, knocking out the cooling system. The reactors began to explode and melt down, blah, blah, blah. Yet as far as we know, no one has received a lethal dose of radiation. That's a correct statement. And it's correct, this is a crappy old station. Think of 1960s cars, no crumple zones or airbags or seat belts, which we now take for granted. It was the same with this design. We're not making them like this anymore, but still it survived more or less the worst thing you could think of. It's caused a pause in nuclear plans, pending safety reviews, and it's likely to put up the cost of nuclear power because of additional safety measures and maybe putting up the cost of borrowing because of worries about safety. And that's the thing. That the price of nuclear entirely depends on what the discount rate is. Uh, last slide on nuclear, and then I'm going to skip fusion, unfortunately. What are the options? Recycling. The French do it. We don't. You can get more energy per kilo, reduce the waste by a factor of two or three, but if you recycle, you pull plutonium out, there's a slight increase of waste streams, short-term radiation, and proliferation. But I think if anybody's going to make a nuclear bomb, they're going to do it with highly enriched uranium at the front end of the nuclear fuel cycle. Nobody's going to do it with the back end in the recycling. Fast breeder reactors. Now, uh, natural uranium is 99.3% uranium-238, which isn't uh, uh, fissile. So nuclear reactors normally use U-235, which is only 0.7%. So we're only using less than 1% of the uranium in conventional nuclear reactors. But if you bombard this stuff with neutrons, you can turn it into plutonium, which is fissile. 
It happens in conventional reactors, but the plutonium is a small fraction of their energy. You can design nuclear reactors to turn all of this stuff into uh, plutonium and burn it. So you can get 100 times much more energy per kilogram, less waste, and you can burn waste from conventional reactors, and it's somewhat less safe, more expensive, but you, and it produces a large plutonium inventory, so it's a sort of little bit more, less proliferation uh, resistant. To breed enough plutonium from one reactor to start another takes 12 years. So 2, 4, 8, if you want to get into the plutonium economy, you better not wait till uh, uranium's finished. You need to start early. The other thing is thorium. Again, thorium is not fissile. It can't make a chain reaction. It's fertile. In other words, you hit it with neutrons, it turns into this stuff, U233, which is fissile. There is a lot, there's about three, or three times as much thorium in the Earth's crust as uranium. How much is accessible is another question. People haven't looked carefully for it, but there's a lot more than there is U235. Because this is lighter than uranium, it makes less waste, actinides. And you can burn waste from conventional reactors, and it's more proliferation resistant, not totally. So thorium reactors look rather attractive. They will give less long-lived waste, and there's lots of fuel out there. They haven't been developed because they're somewhat harder, and uh, you know there's plenty of uranium around. Uh, and uh, there are other problems to start them. You need highly enriched uranium or plutonium. But I think we need to be getting on developing these things in advance of the day when uranium, conventional uranium becomes too expensive and become mandatory. We need to put a lot of money into R&D on these things now. Meanwhile, I expect actually until we go over to pure fast breeders, thorium or maybe fusion, a mixed economy of conventional reactors and waste being burned by some fast breeders or thorium reactors or maybe accelerator-driven systems. That's another story. So in order not to keep you from your drink, I'm going to skip fusion. Let me just say the bottom line. Uh, fusion is fusing light nuclei uh, and it's, um, there's inexhaustible fuel. The raw fuels are lithium and water. There's enough for millions of years and it doesn't directly make any nuclear waste. Sounds like a dream. It makes nuclear waste in the, in the surrounding wall but with life, half-lives of 10 years. After 100 years, you could recycle everything in a fusion reactor. So it's there forever and uh, there's a huge amount of it. Uh, the potential is absolutely enormous, and it doesn't give long-lived waste. And it's intrinsically safe. It's very hard to make it work, or will we be using it? If anything goes wrong, it stops. Uh, why are we not doing it? It's very, very difficult. But in my mind, we absolutely got to do it. My conclusion is, I think it will be possible to make a fusion power station. The big question is, can we make it work 80% of the time and not 5% of the time? It's very complicated. It's very hard to project forward technical reliabilities. I mean, you know, if you'd seen Blerio crossing the fat channel and someone shown you a picture of a jumbo jet, you'd have said, you're joking. But of course, there's mass production there. Technology moves on. So I'm not sure that we can make it. I'm sure we can make it, but I'm not sure we can make it reliable or competitive but I don't know competitive with what, so I don't even know what that means. But I'm absolutely certain that we must pursue fusion development as rapidly as possible. There's no point doing it badly. 
So now I'm nearly at the end. Could it add up to a solution? We need demand reduction, better design and planning. Increased efficiency. The most obvious steps save money, and I said I'd show you a slide on saving money. So the question is, what, why are we not doing it? Now let me show you the slide. You're not going to be able to read this, but I don't want you to. Uh, so this is from a McKinsey report, and it shows the cost in dollars of saving a ton of CO2. And this is for the U.S., the total amount saved in gigatons. So the U.S. at this date was producing about 6.5 gigatons of CO2 a year. And you notice this is all negative. In other words, you save money by doing this. So things that actually save money could, according to McKinsey, save 1.2 gigatons. This is sort of 20% of the U.S. CO2. So what are these things? More efficient lighting, better buildings, all the things I was talking about. Why are we not doing it? Because we don't care. We're too affluent. So this is where regulation is absolutely vital. But in principle, 20% of the U.S. CO2 can be saved while making money. Now, the authors of this then did something fanciful. They said, supposing you put this save money and invested it in things that cost money, which won't happen because these are different people than the people investing. So you put it over here in more solar voltaics, etc., etc. So this costs money to save CO2, but it's rather amusing that if you take this amount of money and you're up to three gigatons, nearly half the U.S. CO2, of course it's a big producer of CO2, could be saved with cost neutral overall. Doesn't happen because we're too affluent. Why is this not happening in the development world? Because they don't have the capital. If you're living on a dollar a day, you're not going to buy one of those curly light bulbs, even if the payback time is six months, which it probably is, because you haven't got the capital to spend you know, the money on a curly light bulb. You buy an old-fashioned incandescent light bulb. So we need regulation and we need help to the people in the developing world. There is no silver bullet. We need everything I've talked about. There's a huge... Uh, ah, I've skipped a slide. Let me go back. Technology development, everything pushed to the limit. The political willingness to pay more and, uh, uh, and so on. Actually, I can go to my uh, concluding slide, which I see is repetitive. So we express, expect a huge increase in energy use. And we need it to lift people out of poverty. If we don't care about the developing world, we don't have a problem. And we can pay to adjust to climate change. The challenge of an environmentally responsible and morally responsible with respect to the rest of the world is enormous. We need everything we can take. There is a huge R&D agenda. You have to judge this on the scale of the world energy market. Now, the world energy market depends on the price of oil, but it's around $5 trillion a year. Probably more today because the oil price is high. I haven't looked at it. $5 trillion a year. How much are we spending on energy R&D? Public funding is about $20 billion a year. That's the same level as in 1980. After the oil shock in 73, publicly funded R&D budgets went up, and then in the 90s said, oil shot? What oil shot? They came down again. And they've only just recovered to governments investing as much in energy R&D as they were 30 years ago. Well, meanwhile, the market has shot, you know, far more energy, and we realize, which we didn't in 1980, we have a real problem with uh, burning fossil fuels.
Also, 400 billion a year subsidies for fossil fuels. Complete scandal. The only justification for this is helping with poverty. That's the public reason given, but according to the IEA, only about uh, 15% of the 300 billion that is at the consumer end is actually helping people out of poverty. So this is a scandal, and in between the energy R&D of 20 billion, there are subsidies for renewables, which are good because they are giving the economies of scale and scale up for wind and renewable. They're running at about 50 billion a year. So the public funding, which is the only long... The industry is putting a lot now, but the long-term funding is almost all from governments, is, is pathetically small. And we need financial incentives and regulation, as I have stressed. And we need the political will. It's very hard to change the system. We get technology lock-in. If you want to go to you know, hydrogen cars, you've got to make a hydrogen distribution system. Not easy. The classic example of this is the QWERTY keyboard. You probably know this. In the early days, people were worried that the typists were too fast and that you know, those things that came up and banged the paper got jammed. The QWERTY t- t- keyboard is designed to slow down typists. We could move to a much better system now, but it'll never happen because we're locked into it. So it's hard to change energy technologies. We've, we're locked into them. Uh, It's going to cost money. And the benefits are long-term and to society, not to the producers who don't see profit in it or no short-term market. So this is an area where public intervention is essential. We need the political will and the society's willingness to intervene and do something, and the time for action is now. People talk about the discount rate, can we wait?, And I was told of a very nice cartoon in the Financial Times of two Martians arriving to discover a devastated Earth. And one says to the other, oh, they must have used the wrong discount rate. Uh, We shouldn't be arguing about the discount rate. We need to act now. Otherwise, we can worry about a Malthusian solution. Thank you very much.